0: Amen. Good morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to two places. We're going to flip back and forth today between Matthew 2 and Revelation 12. So, you know, good luck to you. You can figure it out as well as you can. I hope that you do have a paper copy of scripture. That makes it pretty easy to kind of keep your finger in both places. But uh, if not, please don't panic. We'll have that, uh, those words on the screen for you and love to give you a copy of the scriptures on your way out. Uh, My name is Ben, one of the pastors. Sorry, I usually say that all in the right order, and if you don't, then you just leave parts out. I apologize. Uh, But I wanted to think with you as we continue in this kind of Christmas Advent season about the sort of precariousness of the story. Uh, There's something about a story that you hear over and over and over again that you've grown up in a world where it's just sort of understood and accepted that maybe you miss some of the drama of it. And so I just want to take a moment to kind of underline the reality of what took place when Jesus was born, the precariousness of this most essential of historic events. And if you think about the times when history rests on a knife's edge, it does happen Biblically, we start at the very beginning and you have that moment where Eve is considering the apple if she hadn't. I mean, again, you may not be a Christian, you may not know exactly what I'm talking about, but we believe that that's the point at which disobedience and therefore death and separation from God like, came into existence, came into the story that before that we did have a perfect connection with God. He didn't create us in sin. He created us to be with Him, to know Him. And then, here's this moment the serpent comes, temptation happens, and Eve can bite it or not. Think about what rested on that moment, on that decision. You go a little further in Scripture, you get to the point where God tells Noah to go and build an ark. Build a giant boat because the sin of humanity has gotten so great that he's going to send this flood and judgment. And the only way that there will be a remnant that survives is if, if he continues. He he starts and then continues to build this massive boat. Just think if he didn't. You think if he he became like all of his neighbors and just said, "Ah, no, what would have happened? I learned this today. Just think about if NBC didn't pick up Friends. They almost didn't. I don't know if you knew that or not. I don't know if your whole world depends on it like some people's does. Apparently, uh, Warner Brothers makes over a billion a year in syndication from the TV show Friends. It's a sitcom TV show. They make over a billion a year in syndication. Viewers around the world, according to Netflix, in 2018 spent 54.3 million hours watching Friends. On Netflix. That's the equivalent of 62,000 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't do that math, somebody else did, so I think it's probably legitimate. Uh, that's crazy. And they almost didn't pick up the show, NBC. You could maybe argue the other way with that one. Like, what could humanity have accomplished if we didn't have uh, that 62,000 years just gone? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, stuff rests on a knife edge. You don't know what could have, would have. And with Christmas, I want to just kind of employ for you some of the drama that's in the story because it didn't almost not happen. It almost did not happen. There was an intensity to it and there was a drama to it. And the fact that even though it almost didn't happen and yet it did It gives us some stuff to think about, to really chew on as we go through Christmas. So let's start. Matthew chapter 2, we just finished the story of Jesus' actual birth. And it's a crazy story. You have Mary who becomes pregnant without Joseph. Fill in the blank parents later if you choose. But in this miracle, there's a problem. And Joseph could have said, good luck, Mary. He... Then they have to go to a different place. They're not able to give birth in the normal sort of town that they lived in. They had to travel to Bethlehem because of the census. Then, they ha- because it's all full and they don't know anybody there, they have to give birth in a stable. Ha! Dangerous, I would imagine. I was nervous with my wife giving birth in like a modern hospital. Imagine if it had been a stable. You can speak. We actually have an obedien that goes here. I'm sure she could fill in some gory details for you about what could have happened. It was a dangerous scenario. Then fast forward slightly further, and you get to this point at which the wise men come. It says in Matthew 2, chapter Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The wise men come. They say that the king has come. Herod, who at that time is king, he's monarch over the Jewish people. He hears that the prophecies are going to be fulfilled, and instead of rejoicing and bowing down, he's troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. So assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Understand the wickedness of this. He's actively searching the scriptures to undermine them. Tell me the prophecies so that we know, so that we can stop them from taking place. What? That's what he does. And the chief priests and scribes, instead of dying for the truth that they apparently live for, quickly tell him, uh, Bethlehem of Judea, uh, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The story then focuses on the wise men going to be with Jesus. Then you go a little bit further to kind of pick up again what took place with Herod. Now in in, uh, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, when the wise men then left Jesus, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. The story continues that Herod, in a rage, has all the infant boys in Bethlehem killed. Intense. Again, you just heard it as a story a thousand times. Take a moment to just put it in your own story. Put it in your own life. If you've had a kid... And you're like, you know, excited and exhausted and physically just sort of wasted from it. And somebody comes up to you and says, Great, congrats. Also, you're being going to be killed by the president if you don't leave the country immediately. Travel hundreds of miles with no money to a place you don't know. Or your baby's going to die. Intense. It's this incredible sort of scene. If you made it a movie, it'd be awesome. I mean, it'd be a little weird, you know, having Jason born with like a baby. But it's, you know, a a thing. It's a movie. It's an intense moment. And it's wild, and it's sad, and it's intense. But I want to employ a little bit more Scripture to kind of put a whole different layer on it. Because while you do have Herod and all of Jerusalem with him actively seeking to stop God's plan and kill the Messiah... You also have something more going on. So if you go now to Revelation chapter 12, you see a whole different sort of slice of this story. You know, Matthew's sort of given us the story from our angle, what we would see. Revelation has kind of given us the angle from the spiritual side, from the heavenly side, with the fullness of what's taking place. In Revelation 12, verses 1 through 4, it says... And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on its heads, seven diadems, that's another word for crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, I know this is Bible, but it's okay for your first reaction to be like, what? Totally fine. Uh, this, This is something that's a little difficult. It takes a little extra reading to access. Chesterton, you know, again, always going to quote him, but he says, although uh, St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, John who wrote Revelation, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And boy, he's right. Uh, You got to be careful with Revelation. You ever get to somebody who's going to tell you what Revelation means? I don't know. Buckle up, get out of there, something, be careful. And I know I'm about to do that, but I'm asking you with me to just slowly and cautiously try to access this in, I think, the most proper way, which is to interpret Scripture with other Scriptures. Some of the best stuff I've read on Revelation are when people are so familiar with Old Testament that as they're trying to interpret each piece of Revelation, they just say, I think it could be this because, and then they give you lots and lots and lots of references from the Old Testament. Then, if you go and check those references, there are legitimate connections. Scripture with scripture. One example in this passage would be the fact that this woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. Who is this woman? We could quickly think it's Mary because there's some sort of a baby that's being born and the dragon's going to try and eat the baby. And I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think it's all right. If you look through the scriptures and hopefully what you're doing as you're reading the scriptures daily and hiding them in your heart is you're getting sort of a Bible uh, taste in your mind and in your heart that as you're eating scripture and seeing what God's given you there, there's points when you're seeing something new where it reminds you of other places you've also read. If you see this woman, and it's a thing that has got the sun, the stars, and the moon, sort of all honor, one of the things that might pop into your head is the vision that Joseph had in Genesis 37. Again, the book of Genesis, if you just start reading Scripture, maybe you start in Genesis, maybe you got to these stories. They're great stories. But it says in Genesis 37 that Joseph, the youngest of Israel's children at the time, Benjamin came after him, but he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers And said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves on the ground before you? Benjamin was born. I'm sorry. He wasn't the youngest, but he was of Rachel's children, these two sons. And he's a dreamer. He's got this dream. And he has this dream where the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were all bowing down to Joseph. He tells his dad, Israel, the guy who's the grandson of Abraham, the one who God has given all these promises that are going to go to Abraham and then through his offspring and to Israel and through his offspring. This guy, Jacob, now called Israel, he is interpreting this dream. And he says, am I, your mother and your brothers, indeed to come and bow ourselves down to the ground before you? Now, the only reason I'm going through this whole elaborate thing is I want you to kind of see the way in which you're supposed to tread lightly with Revelation. You need to be seeing Scripture and so bathed in Scripture that when you read something in Revelation that sounds a little wonky, you've got ammunition from the rest of Scripture in order to interpret What's happening here is not just Mary giving birth to Jesus. It's something like all of the redemptive community, all of God's people through the nations, through the ages. And the way that he's kind of bringing it all to a point, that from the people of Israel would come one who is a king over the people of Israel, that that from God's people would come one that God's people bowed down to. Though he comes after them, yet he is before them. I think it's helpful to maybe take a moment to see that so that you can see that this this picture in Revelation 12, it's not just talking about Jesus' birth, but it's not less than talking about Jesus' birth. It's describing how the active enemy of God and man sought to bring Jesus' life to an end right as he was born. A dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, with a tail that can sweep stars out of the sky, posed himself, set himself to destroy Mary's baby. You see a reflection of that in what Herod did by destroying all these infants, but you also see it time and again through Jesus' life. The passage in Revelation kind of includes Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. What's happening is that God is telling us there was a point at which he really did become vulnerable. So vulnerable that from our perspective as people, but also from a heavenly spiritual perspective... Everybody had the idea that this Jesus cat, God-made man, could die. The whole story could get screwed up from the beginning, that we could have another Eve situation, that we could have a tragedy from which how could we ever recover? It's the moment when God has set all of his enemies, the grandeur of this massive dragon... And he's going he's gonna to put into the field against this massive dragon a pregnant lady? You have to see something of the, the incongruity, something of the insanity from our perspective of this. Because that's what happened. And if you'll see it as what happened, then you're going to be able to take from it some incredible essential truths. Truths that you need over Christmas. So, here are the three things I want us to see from the salvation that God provides to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus as they get away to Egypt. The salvation that God provides through Jesus for us. First, I want you to see that you can trust this truth. I don't know if you've ever done this, but when you actually go to share the gospel, there's a point at which you may wonder if what you're saying is true. I do that. I put a lot of my life behind this thing. But when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, even though I don't really question whether or not it's true at that point, when I see their sort of skeptical look, the way their head kind of turns a little bit as they're listening, it's so foreign for our culture that you'd really think there is a God, that He does love us, that He's put in place this redemption plan because we really are guilty before Him. And that by faith in this God, that, that, that this plan that he's given, we could be forgiven and redeemed and go to this magical place? You know, they, they have this sort of, from our culture's perspective, legitimate sort of skeptical response. And there's a moment where you kind of feel like you just told them you believe in unicorns or something. If you really did say, no, but really, though and you feel like you're having to put all of your sort of credibility on the line for this message that you're sharing, there's a moment, and again, maybe I'm just weak, but there's a moment when you sort of tremble. You sort of wonder. See, as Lewis talked about when he would go into a debate, he was never less sure of something, some some truth of the Christian religion than when he stood up to defend it. Because in that moment, he's thinking through all the things that this person might say to try and undermine, to argue against what he's about to propose. And in the light of all that they could say, there's just a moment when, oh, but what if I'm wrong? Doubt starts to take hold. And what can eat out the, the sort of foundation of your hope more than doubt Can something so small, something so intangible in that moment really be true? Well, yes. And I can look at history in order to support that truth. It seems so crazy that God would do things this way, and yet, biblically, he did. Historically, he did. Nobody argues that Jesus didn't exist. I mean, golly, you can't say nobody. Everybody's so radically skeptical, there's somebody somewhere that'll make that argument. Most reasonable people have no problem admitting that Jesus existed, it was a man that existed. And we have this historical document from the book of Matthew that tells us what happened with his his sort of dangerous moment where he almost was slaughtered, and yet he did survive. We have the historical account of Joseph, who was this guy that we told about his dream. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. And he goes from the pit of the slavery, uh, not just slavery, but even prison in Egypt, to being second in command over the whole place, such that he's able, by God's grace, to lead not just Egypt, but the whole of the Mediterranean world through a massive seven-year famine. From nothing to the top. He was, he was able to survive. God did that. God took what was weak. He took what was not. And he was able to flip the whole world upside down with it. You think about the people of Israel themselves. God chose the people of Israel, and they have survived. They are a historical reality, and they are a present reality. And that's because God was able to do that. It says in Deuteronomy, Moses, he's preaching his last sermon before he goes to die, and the people of Israel go to take the promised land. And in this last sermon, he's telling them who they are. And he's trying to remind them they're not anything that special in and of themselves. I think he would know that. He led them for 40 years and he watched them and just time and again, he's having to beat his head against the rock because these people, are the, these people, and if you've ever tried to lead people, you know, oh my gosh, the best part and the worst part of pastoral ministry, these people. And he feels that, he knows that, and he's sharing that with them. And he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chosen you, for you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not only has God kept the people of Israel through that Egyptian slavery moment, They also survived the total annihilation threat from both the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans, not to mention two millennia later, the Nazis. There's still a reality. God is still able to take a little family and through them bless the whole of the world. He's still able to take Mary, Joseph, and Jesus and through them bless the entirety of the world. There's historical reality that's able to help you support that truth. He wants you to know that it's true, but I also wants you to use that truth. The implications of that truth for believers is massive. Massive. If this is true, it means that death has been defeated and that the accusations of the enemy are toothless. That first part of Revelation where I'm telling you about this woman wearing the sun, huh? It's a little intense, a little hard to accept access. The next part, though, you know, maybe takes a little bit of a hurdle because it's a little imaginative, but it lands, I think, a little bit closer to home for us. It says in verse 7 of Revelation 12, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the word for accuser, and he's called the devil and literally accuser, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The power of the enemy is accusation. Yeah, he wanted to kill Christ. Yeah, he wants to kill you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy But the best way he can hurt you is by showing God your record of disobedience. As powerful and ugly and nasty and mean as he is, he knows that he is nothing in power and he is nothing in authority compared with God the Father. It's still much more effective for him to come to God, use God's rules against you and me. That's what he does. That's the accuser. He says, Oh, you want to love that person, Lord? Sorry. Eve ate the apple, and they did everything else. You read through scripture, and the way that Jesus helps us to see our hearts, he helps us to see that we've broken every law that God has. We live in a posture of disobedience and rebellion against God. And the devil delights to tell God about our failures in the hopes that we will be separated from God forever. So what's the hope of the gospel? What's the hope of Christmas? The hope of Christmas is that the accuser, this dragon with his massive teeth, has had his his teeth knocked out. Those accusations in Christ can be meaningless. Here's what we mean with the gospel. We mean that God has conquered these accusations. He has conquered this strategy of the enemy by the blood of the lamb. The point of Christmas is in some ways the whole of Christ's life and ministry. It's not just that he was born, it's that being born, he's then able to live this perfect life and then die for us Take upon himself the punishment that we deserve for those accusations, which are true. We have broken God's law. We do deserve to be separated from him. But this little perfect lamb that was Christ was sacrificed on our behalf. So, being raised from the dead, he can then take us with him. We can be adopted in him. We can be forgiven through him in order to be with the Lord forever. Take a moment and think about what you do with these accusations that come against you. You have a conscience. you've ever broken God's law, you know it. You feel something, or at least you used to. You feel guilt. You feel shame. Most people historically kind of go one of two ways with that feeling. One is they hide from God. They either go and kind of hide within a worldview that allows them to sort of legitimate their their deception and their hiding from God, or they just kind of bury themselves in rebellion and pretend like God doesn't exist. Other way people go is they try and defend themselves and say, well, no, it wasn't really that bad. Compared to that guy, it wasn't bad at all. Yeah, I know that I did that and, and, and that technically wasn't right, but I've done all these other things and these other things actually outweigh the bad thing that I did. They argue. Neither of those are going to work. The enemy actually is right about us. There's a great song. I hope that you go home and listen to it by Shane and Shane called Embracing Accusations. Snappy title. Shane and Shane, Embracing Accusations. And in it, they remind us that God is, is getting reminded constantly by the enemy that we are, are lost, that we are broken, that we have sinned and that we have rebelled against him. And they say that the devil is preaching the gospel because he's reminding the Lord of the first part of the gospel, which is that we really are sinners, but he's forgotten the refrain that's in the song. And then they say, Jesus saves, and they sing it real high-pitched but really beautifully. There's this awesome harmony. It's very powerful. I can't replicate it. You need to go listen to it. But they just say the fullness of the gospel is not that we are lost and broken and separated from God, but that Jesus saves. And remembering that, then you can access Romans 8, 1 and 2, which says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You want to know what you should be happy for with Christmas? It's the gospel. You don't just trust that truth so that you're more willing to talk about it. You also use that truth. You employ it in your own life to feel hope, to access God again, so you don't keep hiding from Him or arguing with Him. You just go back to Him and be loved by Him. And that's our final point. The thing I want you to do is to enjoy that truth. If the Lord really did endure this level of danger and this level of pain for you, He must really love you. He must. Today, I've been married to Rachel for 12 years. Today's our anniversary. And yesterday, I mean, thanks, you know. It's really, you tell her later, like, wow, you know. Um, and that's the point I'm going to make. Uh, yesterday, we did our, our anniversary date. And on it, it, we just sort of reminisced. We went back through. We talked about the places we've lived. We talked about sort of some highs and lows. We remembered. And what was so sweet about that was that we, at the end of that remembrance, were able to say, I love you in a way that had 12 years of, like, history to it. Like, to look across the table and say, 12 years, and, and she's still there. I mean, it started rough. We were really, really poor when we got married. We built a budget based on predicted income (laughs) because we didn't have jobs. (laughs) We then went to grad school. In our tradition, seminaries, and and really most traditions, seminaries like a grad school that you go to after college, and we just didn't have any money. Like date night was not just Little Caesars. It was Little Caesars at the Kmart. Process that for a moment. Uh, We were just really, really poor. When we first got there, to the school that we were going to be kind of interacting with, we were going to live around. We went and saw all these apartments. They all smelled like cigarette smoke and were too expensive. And uh, we sat in this beautiful sort of quad area with this big lawn out on that campus. And I was trying to like salvage the day like hey you know that was rough we didn't really find any good options but we're gonna figure this out it's fine you know this is gonna be so great look how beautiful this is and i'm just completely untethered from reality and my wife next to me is not saying anything i think we were engaged we were on like a you know trip to figure out where we're gonna be when we do get married she doesn't really say anything and i look over at her lap and her dress there's this puddle because her tears are just rolling off her nose because she's very practical and new. Like, this is a really bad situation. What are we doing? This isn't going to work. But last night, you know, we got to celebrate because that was bad. And, And when we actually got married, things got worse. We had to walk through some, for us, dark, dark stuff. And yet, last night, she still said to me, I love you. It was still true. And in fact, all of that pain and all of that difficulty that we had to go through between the first day and last night made that I love you mean that much more. Listen, you've got to feel the gospel. You've got to feel the danger. You've got to feel the sacrifice that he went through for you so that when he says, I love you, It really lands. When John says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, you can say really and truly, amen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would take the truth of the gospel, the truth of the situation of Jesus' birth, And that you teach us to hope in that truth, Lord, that that truth would solidify our trust in you. And, Father, that we would start to use that truth. Lord, that we would have some backbone, that we would have some strength to us, that we would be willing to lay it on the line for this truth. But also, Father, I pray that we would enjoy it. No condemnation now to be with you forever. As Psalm 23 so beautifully ends. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, let that truth land this Christmas. We love you, sir. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.